Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavior science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today in the Playing It Safe podcast. Super excited to chat with you. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting with you too. And if it's okay, because of the theme of the podcast, I am asking people how they handle fear in general, and maybe that could be a good place for us to start. Do you mind sharing with us what's your relationship to all those moments in which you experience fears, anxieties, worries? Well, that relationship has changed profoundly over my uh, life and the, the work that I do in acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training, you know, is about a 35, almost 40 year journey that centers for which me personally, the central focus has been that question. And it began with my own struggles with uh, panic and anxiety Uh it turns out that the things that we've learned as a community walking through that apply to many, many different things, emotional, cognitive, and so forth in many different areas. But, you know, over time, uh, I've gone from, you know, how can I uh, live with fear? How can I, uh, you know, struggle through to realizing that really the question was more, how can I get with, how can I open up to? How is it possible to feel this and function? And then, you know, as the years go on, it uh, becomes more of a, uh, a curiosity, you know, of uh, noticing the rise and fall of um, difficult emotions of all kinds, fear being one of them, and increasingly being almost um, interested in it. I mean, I, I look forward to it. Um, When it arrives, I don't always click into that zone, but I I think in my general approach to fear, anxiety, et cetera, right now is one of uh, curiosity and uh, interest, Mm -hmm. Uh, almost enjoyment. It's a very weird kind of thing where, you know, you get to test. I mean, think of it, it was almost like, um, uh, you know, if you were knocked off balance by something and you learned how to bring it back in balance and you're working on your physical balance, like on a balance beam, you know, over time you, you kind of enjoy being higher up on the balance beam. So I, I, I do, but always with this knowledge that um, of what's possible. I think most people don't know that you can mishandle fear so badly. You can't function. Once you've uh, learned that, you are one of the lucky ones that never get to to uh, pretend 
Mm -hmm. That's uh, not an issue that you can get so wrapped around anxiety. And I'm sure it's the same with people who become depressed or things of that kind of uh, depression is not my personal struggle. Uh, Once that's happened, then you never go back. You never go back to ignorant innocence. But you can go back to kind of experienced innocence. You can go back to a place where all things are possible and uh, your own emotions are not your own enemy. Mm-hmm. I haven't given you a very concrete answer uh, in terms of what I do because I don't really try to deal with fear anymore. I try to stay present and uh, stay open and stay connected and project out and connect to the consciousness of others. And that's really where my focus is. And when I do do that, fear rises and falls. And uh, that's curious and yeah. fun. Yeah, I love your response. Actually, I appreciate that you're sharing the background about how the relationship with fear has been morphing into something different and it's yes. um if I were next to you, let's say that we're going for a hike and then there is this uncomfortable feeling that pops up. Yeah. How would you practice curiosity? What will I see you doing? How will that look like? Well, if I get knocked off balance, you're going to see me withdraw, go into my head, be quiet, mm-hmm. uh, be more reserved. You wouldn't be sure, quite as sure what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm more imbalanced, uh, you know, I think you'd uh, see it more of, uh, I'd probably bring some of it into the walk if I noticed it, Mm -hmm. uh, if it was appropriate, if it fit. Um, But I'd also deliberately try to bring myself into that moment. And so uh, I'd probably reach out to the person I'm walking Mm -hmm. with and uh, have a conversation and see where we are. Um, to bring my, try to bring myself out into the, you know, what I'm walking through in terms of uh, nature and so forth. You know, there are times where I, I really do sense that uh, an emotional thing coming up is maybe overwhelming it, and it, it sometimes it's connected to fear, but it's often very connected to other things like sadness, loss. Um, shame, guilt, you know, things that sort of rumble around in the basement. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, those would be less likely uh, walking on a walk, but maybe so. I mean, I, I um, think at my age, you know, I'm I'm about to turn 72, you have a lot more contact with sadness and loss Mm -hmm. because you start seeing your people of your generation struggling with, health problems and people start to die mm-hmm. and um, that itself can be fearsome but it, it, it it's also more challenging and loving really because the reason why those emotions show up is that uh, life is of importance and it will and it will pass away Mm-hmm. So it has that poignant, bittersweet quality. It's like uh, watching a, a wedding or or a child being born. Nobody would say that's sad. They probably wouldn't say it's fearsome, but it has that rich soup of love and loss. Like you know that the 
vows you're seeing in the front of the wedding ceremony will be followed by fights and disconnections and uh, criticism and difficulties and challenges on each side. You know that if you watch a baby being born, that uh, that will be followed by struggles and uh, pain and eventually death. You know that. So I think it's inside all of our positive moments and um, uh, our negative emotions, so-called, are good guides to that, including fear. Mm-hmm. To the pursuit of life. Speaking about that, I appreciate that you try to unpack these fearful moments. Is there guilt? Is there sadness? They are linked to something. Yes. If you look back into your life, what would you say were the three most important learnings? There may be many, but if you can share maybe three learnings that you had from fearful moments. Yes. You know, I've told some of this in some of my writings and in my TEDx talks and things like that. Um, and it's unfolded over time because, mm-hmm. um, you know, my initial pattern, my early on pattern is to do what I think children would often do, which is you try to avoid pain, you try to suppress it, you try not to see tragedy, you try not to be overwhelmed, and you do the logical, reasonable, sensible, pathological things that anyone would do if you didn't have better guidance. And when you're just, when you're young, when, when you're a teenager and a young adult, you're going to make mistakes on that because we don't come with a rule book and very often the models around us uh, aren't necessarily the wisest. And so you, life is here to teach you about some of these things, but you know, I think uh, my initial approach was very dominantly avoidant and suppressive. Mm-hmm. I still am not good at it. It's kind of humorous that I'm the, uh, you know, the originator or the instigator of the psychological flexibility model in the act work, because just ask my wife about how avoidant I am and she'll tell you. But I, what she will also say, just in the arc of our now many years of relationship that I've gotten better. And, and what I would say is you didn't know me when I was, when I was 20, you know, because, uh, oh my goodness, uh, if I'm bad now, quote bad, but if I'm avoidant and suppressive now, so, yeah, I, I would many, many times more then. Uh, so, you know, we're not, we don't have a speedometer on our head. We're doing, but to answer your question, um, in my family of origin, you know, I had, I saw a lot of suffering. I saw domestic violence. I saw my dad struggle with alcoholism and anxiety. I didn't realize it was anxiety till later on when I realized what he was covering up with drink and with, um, you know, benzodiazepines and both at once. I mean, so, he, I mean, he was just hammering him the, the emotional reactions down as best he could. Uh, my mother was uh, clinically OCD and depressed. She'd be so depressed she wouldn't move for months at a time. I mean, she literally become catatonic almost. And um, and every, almost every time I left my front door as a child, she would remind me not to eat the oleander because there was a poisonous bush. Uh, oleander you, you can't eat uh, right outside our front door in Southern California. I mean, so it was a daily exposure to neuroticism, anxiety, obsession, compulsion, depression, anxiety. I mean, that was the water I was being stewed in like a meatball or something. And so 
you know, when I uh, was a, a young adult, a young professional, I became really overwhelmed by conflict mm -hmm. and uh, especially watching this inside my academic department where, as I say in my TED talk, I got to watch full professors fight in a way that only wild animals and full professors are capable of. But it, you know, I think it pushed my buttons because it took me back to a time mm -hmm. when I felt helpless and alone and really almost worried for my physical safety. I wasn't sure I'd make it out of alive. I tell the story of watching my dad rip out of the driveway, really, really angry, forgetting that my brother was in the back of the station wagon and that the tailgate was down and he fell out on his head on the street. Um, you know, and these were very loving people, but they were so out of control in their own emotional life. And without any support back then, people didn't see therapy. So it's too long of an answer, but uh, I'd say the dominant theme, I haven't given you three, I've given you one, is, is difficult emotions to me took me back to a time of vulnerability, of not being able to control my environment, of uh, physical safety, of trauma, of uh, feeling overwhelmed. And when that happened as an adult, and I got wrapped around the axle of panic disorder and spent three years spinning down to the point where I couldn't answer a phone call without shaking or go to a restaurant or, or give a lecture in a class with five undergraduates. You know, I couldn't go to a movie. I, I couldn't drive in a car. I couldn't ride in an elevator. I couldn't, you know, I would kind of force myself to do these things. I'd white knuckle it mm -hmm. and, and hide it the people who were my colleagues at the time had no idea because I'd be funny. I'd, you know, but I was funny when I was drinking tank tranquilizers and drinking beer, you know I mean? I was so, um, thankfully, thankfully, thankfully my, uh, my mind said, no, said, you know, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna let you get away with this. I mean, to, for me, panic disorder was a precious gift because without it, I would have lived my life in a pathway of suppression and performance. So um, maybe that's the one theme. Maybe it's not three. I'm super grateful for your kindness sharing such an intimate experience, how you were stuck in different moments and have to learn to relate to it in different ways with different people. I have a new hashtag. Hashtag Steve is human. So <laughs> we can use that one. Because <laughs> I think for most of us, we read your books, we see your TED Talks, we see how many papers you have published. We may not see the struggle behind. We may not see behind the scenes what happens under your skin. I watch your TED Talks multiple times. It seems that every time I get something new from each one of them. But I also get super curious given all the historical relationship with fear being there on a stage when you're just putting all yourself out there in front of thousands of people do you mind sharing how was the process of deciding that you're going to give a TED talk how did you handle all that maybe yucky stuff that may have show up on the stage 
Yeah, it's uh, I've done two of those and I've done multiple talks with large audiences and something. There is something special about the TEDx just because the amplification in the modern world of modern media is you're aware of it. Uh, and that's true on radio shows, TV shows, things things that you uh, do that are also part of the the media. Um, in the the first TEDx talk that I did, you know, I wanted to tell the core of the story that you asked about. I wanted to walk into the hell of my own history and try to link it up to psychological flexibility and how people can f- begin to use it. You give, you give them a few practical tools best you can in 18 minutes and um, uh, it was a huge challenge but it wasn't a huge challenge so much because of the fear of giving the talk or how many people and so forth I've learned to just kind of let my mind say those things and just not get wrapped around it um, live tv still hooks me a little bit live radio no what I'm doing right now no it just doesn't I've done so many uh, you put me on Oprah, I'd probably be a little afraid, frankly, but uh, that's fine. I'll bring it into those moments as best I can. And if I don't, then they'll get to see uh, an odd person uh, behaving uh, with a great deal of anxiety. You know, that's what will happen. Okay. Um, it's human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the initial TEDx, what was difficult about it was to walk inside a place where you felt over- overwhelmed. Mm-hmm and do it deliberately. And, and the focus point is a scream that is in that talk. Yes. That happened once when I was caught in a very large machine at an aluminum factory as a young man uh, and almost chopped in half. Uh, and they heard me screaming and turned off the machine. I still have a dent in my leg. If it had gone another inch, my leg would, my hips would have been crushed. Two, three more inches, I'd be dead. And um, they heard it and they, and they turned it off and then they took 30 minutes to decide which lever to push because if they pushed the wrong lever, it would chop me in half. And I'm hearing this conversation. I'm not sure, should you pull this one or that one? You know, one does this, one does that. I'm, like, I'm praying they pull the wrong, pull the right lever. Um, that was the first time that scream came out of my mouth and good thing it did because the operator of that machine heard it, this huge machine bigger than a small house. And I'm way down inside. Uh, the second time was that the bottom of my panic struggle at two thirty in the morning where I, I think that I'm having a heart attack and then I realize I'm having a panic attack. And then in that realization, I, I realized that even my own body can't be trusted, you know, like, nothing is working right. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to breathe, walk, sit, anything, everything's on the table. It isn't just even undergraduates. It's bad enough. I can't give a lecture to a class, but maybe I can't even breathe. Maybe I can't even sleep. Maybe I, you know, like that this thing is going to just take everything from me and feeling as though there's no way out. Um, I'm sure people have hit that, you know, whether sitting in front of a gun or standing on the side of a ledge or um, where you feel like you're just half an inch away from uh, losing everything. And to me, that scream was that. And, um, you know, I'm feeling the emotion to saying it now. Well, I was going to go deliberately 
and make that scream happen again. So I practiced the talk about 30 times because I wanted it to be smooth and good and all of that, but also because I knew that scream was coming. And I really wasn't sure I could do it, but I didn't practice the scream because it was too, I don't even know what the right word is. I could say it's too overwhelming, but it would be almost this mixture of, it's almost like sacred ground or something. It's too personal. It's too intense. It's too raw. It's too, it's just too, you know, um, before I got on stage and I was about five minutes away, I got in front of my wife and I looked right in her eyes and I said, I can't do it. And I don't think I can do it. And uh, it was, you know, it was a scream I couldn't do. But I felt as though I needed to. If I was going to tell that story, I needed to go there. And, um, she got in front of my eyes and she said, just be yourself. Which is what I did as best I could. Um, I've never done that scream again. I can tell you that when, when I'm, I show the tape sometimes in workshops and I tend to go to the back of the room. Sometimes I've left the room. Mm -hmm. I don't like hearing it either. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're, Asking a question, you know, about what was hard, that was what was hard, how to make it safe. It wasn't that it wasn't safe. It's how to be yourself while uh, visiting hell again on purpose. Mm -hmm. I can see the rawness of what it means to you. Yeah. I can share something with you. Actually, it just occurs to me. I'm sorry for interrupting. You know, it isn't even just but the performance. It isn't even just doing the scream. I wrote this book, A Liberated Mind, and I decided I would tell a little of my story. Very little of my stories in my other books. I, I tell personal small stories, but not the bigger story. And I still haven't done that to the nines because it, I didn't want to write an autobiography. I wanted to write a book that was helpful to people. But I thought, you know, why would people care? Why would they want to do this journey? And that maybe I could use my own story as a way to help people care enough um, to even walk inside it. And most people have, you know, if you look at the Amazon reviews, a few people say, oh, it's narcissistic, blah, 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 which may even be true to a degree. But, but I know my intent was good. When I was researching the book, it was really, really important to me to know where did that scream happen? I spent many, many hours because I could picture the room, I could picture the window, I could picture, but it was foreign to me. I didn't know whose house was that. It wasn't my house. Mm -hmm. Why was I there? I, I didn't know the details. And I was um, working with the development editor, John Cloud, who wrote the uh, initial time story about ACT in 2005, the late John Cloud very sweet man who was connected to that work and who uh, lost his life to his addiction, uh, dead now. But uh, I dedicated the book to him with a little story about what we ask reporters to do, you know, like run to the 9-11 site and watch people hit the ground at 200 miles an hour. That was John Cloud. Um, without any psychological training, you know, well, back to this story. 
Uh, I looked, I looked, I looked, I couldn't find it. Finally, a former girlfriend I went was going through several says, Oh yes, that's my apartment. I sent her the the room layout, says, Oh yes, that's it. I said, Did you have a bed here? Was there was there a thing here as a window? I'm gonna cry talking about it. And she came back and said, Yeah, that's right. Was there a shag carpet? Yes. And I uh, wrote a letter of an email to John saying, I found it, I found it, I found it. It would be like if you had had an abuse history or a rape or something and you had suppressed it so horribly, so thoroughly, um, that it was almost like a dream state because you just couldn't go there. It was just too dark, you know. And then later on, you're doing your PTSD or trauma work and you learn, no, I need to open up even to these automatic biographical memories that are very, very hard, you know. And so you go through a process and you deliberately remember and it begins to come to you and so forth. People who have abuse histories and they're, when they're children and so forth very often are doing this difficult work. And it's not that you have to go over the entrails. It's that the parts that are in the present that are asking to be seen, uh, you eventually get to the point where you, to move on, you need to say yes. Okay, even that, you can come with me. And um, so it really seemed important to me that I know, was it like I was thinking? Not that it was true in all of its details, but, and um, it was a huge moment in my life and very emotional. I mean, I was weeping for hours when uh, she wrote me that email said, oh, yes, that's, that's my apartment. I've tried to express this story and people go like, why was that so emotional to you? And I have a hard time explaining it. Um, I still am a little puzzled by it, uh, but it has something to do with um, pain matters. Our emotions matter. Our lives matter. And if you're going to be a therapist and you're going to try to bring things into the world that are going to be useful to people who suffered far more than you, you better know something about what's in the basement and you better do a little bit of work to honor the darkness and to witness and to be true as best you can to the experience because you're going to need to do that in a journey with the people that you're serving. It was something like that. It's just sacred ground. Mm -hmm. Steve, did you try any other times to tap into that, to unpack that memory? I can see how this was like a pivot, right? When you actually say, yeah, this is the room. There is something that shapes there for you. What about before then? Did you try to go back to those memories and how was the process? Yeah, I think in small ways and actually the act processes tell the journey. Mm-hmm. It's part of that's a personal journey, you know, of a behavior therapist, cognitive behavior therapist, child of the 60s, you know, person who sat on Hippie Hill, who, you know, took more psychedelics than they probably should have, who, you know, went to the Zen retreats and listened to the Zen masters and, 
you know, where Esalen was, uh, you know, wonderful and, and you know, tea groups and, and, and uh, marathons and Fritz Perls. And, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody who has a generational uh, instruction mm-hmm. um, that's hard to understand if you weren't part of that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those songs, those Crosby, Sills, Nash songs, et cetera. You know, I almost cut my hair the other day. I could have said it was in my way. You know, it was a commitment to taking the 50s into a different space of taking men and women who were called your fathers and mothers, who were your fathers and mothers, but you looked at with puzzlement because they suffered so inside something that you might understand by watching Mad Men. Mm-hmm. You know, my father literally sold aluminum, just like the, the aluminum siding salesman did something. Was, you know, and was drinking to survive. And they had nothing. They had no therapists. They had nothing except uh, suppression and alcohol. And uh, you're supposed to be happy that you have two cars and you can live in the suburbs and it was worse before the war. I mean, our generation said no. And um, that doesn't mean that we were ready. Mm-hmm. We were not ready. And this generation right now uh, are, are saying no. They're saying no to racism. They're saying no to the excesses of capitalism. And they're standing up. And, you know, and I hope they're wiser. And so the act processes are a story of a journey of a person, but also a generation of trying to figure out how to unlock the human mind in such a way. Now using Western science, we're not going to do it just with the gurus. We're not going to do it just with what we did in the sixties. We're not going to just eat psychedelics and thinks that will save us. We're not going to go to the back of the land and grab a rifle and plant weed in the back 40 and, and keep the, the narcs out. You know, all the stuff my generation did that was a mix of good, bad, and different and horrible. And it continued to this day. There was right wing, left wing. It was all those wings. It wasn't a simple thing. Uh, we're gonna, we're now in a different era. But what ACT has done is to be the wing that yet said yes to mindfulness, yes to emotion, yes to openness, yes to values, yes to the aspirations that the hippies had. You know, the yippies used to show up and give away free food. You know. The, it wasn't about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's bullshit. That's that's what reporters said. It was about changing the human heart and liberating the human mind. That's what it was about. And we did a, a wonderful and horrible job. Um, and so now, here we are with Western science. We can unpack it. We can say, like, here are the six psychological flexibility processes. All of them are helpful to opening up your heart and mind. That's an empirical fact. We know it. Two or 3,000 studies, not just on ACT. And we can put that into the culture. Mm-hmm. Put it into your clinic, yes, but we can put it into your school. We can put it into your diversity program. 
We can put it into your employment setting. We can put it into your stress management program. We can put it into your cancer treatment clinics, and we can put it into your uh, sports coaching. And so I'm on a rant, but what I did was in small ways, allow my pain to guide me, then allow the science to guide me and create a community and trust the larger community. I never allow people to say I developed ACT. I instigated it. I co-developed it, but an entire community, including you, developed it and are developing it right now. And so we can sit here saying, yes, we have something to contribute. And I, in small nibbling ways, use my diffusion, acceptance, present moment focus from this a more spiritual place in a values-based way on a deliberate attempt to create committed action patterns around exposure, figured out a way to, you know, to walk this little boy within right inside domestic violence and watching what happened in my home and my panic disordered history. And even my little graduation exercise deliberately brought a voice to what it's like for me to hit bottom when there's no way out and to write about it in this new book, to, to walk there inside that scream and the TEDx talk and kind of feel like, okay, you know, I'm 72 years old. If you shoot me and I die and eat meat right now, I did what I came to do. And uh, there's still a journey ahead. I'm I'm vigorous. I'm, excited about the future and more interested in what I don't know than what I do. But um, is that too long an answer to your question? I think what comes to my mind is there is this parallel history between developing psychological flexibility while you're also trying to figure out your own pain, while you're also trying to figure out how you relate to it. I'm trying a bunch of things. Exactly right. Anything in the act canons that I haven't done myself. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!